Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We need this kind of leadership. God knows I'm not providing it. Hello and welcome to Dungeon Deep Dive. Uh, each week we bring a little bit of uh, deep dive to your fantasy world. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that the land that we're recording on uh, is a stolen land. It's the land of the Turtle and Yagara people of uh, Mianjin, uh, otherwise known as Brisbane. Uh, we want to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that these lands were always places of teaching and learning and storytelling. And uh, if we and we'd like to pay respects to any elders past, present and emerging. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation, if you'd like to have a voice on the show, we'd love to have you. Uh, yeah, you can reach out to us on any of our socials uh, at Dungeon Deep Dive or, any, or email us at d- deepdivetnc at gmail.com. How do you think about that one? Um, I yeah, mean, that goes for anyone. I mean, we've... Absolutely. If you want to get in contact about anything we've said on the show, if you want, if you've got corrections, if you've got suggestions, if you've got requests, or if you want to be on the show, please just get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Look, I'll, I'll even take, I'll even read your draft, uh, gotcha journalist articles about me. I'm, I'm really just that kind of desperate to, to talk to people at this point. To have emails. Um, you may be able to tell from the quality of the recording. Uh, we'll see how this goes <laughs> when I edit it together this time. Uh, but this is the second episode that we have recorded uh, remotely for reasons that should... Uh, I mean, if you look at the release date of this episode, I'm sure you get why. Exactly. Um, but if you do not understand why we are recording at home, uh, we envy you. Ugh. God, yeah. Uh, a flash forward to a simpler time. So, uh, forgive us for any audio issues. Uh, just want to get that out of the way up top. And with that, today we are talking about games. Oh my God! Sorry, I just I noticed that we got uh, an episode ages ago. Oh yeah. I, I've somehow missed it in all the Twitter stuff. Uh, an email from Cassidy Winter. Oh! Um, hi, Cassidy Winter. Um, hey, Deep Divers, just emailing in response to the hair episode because you asked for one. Lots of interesting stuff. Uh, while you did mention that hairstyle and length have been extremely gendered over the centuries, I noticed that none of you mentioned the European medieval punishment for hair cutting for women. While I'm certainly no expert, I'm fairly sure it was intended as a humiliation thing. In such a society with such a heavily enforced gender binary, it must have been an extremely severe thing to be forced to have a feature that didn't, however temporarily, match with, match with it. Off the top of my head, yeah. uh, a recent example is Game of Thrones, where Cersei Lannister's hair is forcefully cut in preparation for the Walk of Shame. Anyway, keep up the great work, y'all. From Cassidy. 
Oh, thank you, Cassidy. Uh, you have breathed so much life uh, into this recording. That was uh, already. That was I'm incredible. feeling. Thank you. Mm. Shout out. We love you, Cassidy. Thank you so much. Um, we're sorry we didn't we didn't uh, put that out until now. Um, yeah. As you can tell, we get a lot of emails <laughs> from Twitter and none from real people. So thank you so very much. I'll respond to that as soon as this episode is done at recording. Um, but a uh, bit of a shout out there. Yeah. And I mean, that's actually, that is a good point. I don't know why we didn't touch on that, actually. That seems like totally up our alley. That's a really good point. Um, but I mean, I'm no expert on the practice either, but I did... I do know that it, yeah, it was, it was specifically like a humiliation thing. Um, I think it was also kind of in part, uh, if I recall correctly, um, not so much about the gendered elements, uh, at least on paper and was more about like stripping someone of their personhood. Um, the kind of reduction, like I was kind of talking about with the idea of like using, like taking hair as a political act, um, I believe that that's mm. more what the, like the earlier practice was more a predecessor to that, but obviously like gendered elements would have absolutely been a play. Um, I don't know the specific history absolutely. of it being used against women. Um, so that's definitely something to look into. I can't remember. Yeah, definitely something, yeah, definitely something I, we should look if we can do some revisits of some episodes and look into stuff like that. I, um, Ooh, yeah. I can't remember what he says. I can't remember what he says about it, but um, I'm pretty sure Victor Hugo has a chapter about, like, hair-based humiliation in Les Mis uh, when what's-her-name cuts her hair off to sell. Like, he has a whole thing about, like, that very particular humiliation. I can't remember it. Mm. I will search it up at some point. That makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. So it's clearly I mean, Victor idea. Hugo was very into writing in the ver the specifics of whatever was going on. There's probably some very, very relevant work there. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. yeah. I mean man love to write. Gotta give him credit for that. Absolutely. Uh thanks to Lim is I know a lot about eighteenth century nunneries. Ooh. Mm. Ooh. That was not the point there of the book. Well that wasn't the point of the book. He just really liked them. He just really liked them. Apparently sewers as well and prostitutes. Um he was a man yeah. of many tastes. <laughs> a man of great and varied tastes. Yeah, he contains um, multitudes, Tully. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Cassidy, for emailing in. Uh, it's absolutely lovely to hear from one of you. Uh, and please, if you have anything you'd like to add, uh, be it small or enormous, we'll take anything from one-line emails to essays. Um, I'm not trimming any sh of So this. shout out to Cassidy, our number one fan. I'm not trimming any of this down and you, we're going to sound so desperate, Tully. It's going to be absolutely ridiculous. And I want you to know that I'm not going to, I'm not going to save us. I'm not going to save us from this. I'm just going to come in and say, I I mean, I'm happy with that. <laughs> I'm just going to come in and say, I am desperate for attention. I have straight up asked like publicly on my Twitter account, please listen to this and make memes of it. I can't carry this by myself. <laughs> I have to be... I, there has to be one other person on Twitter making hyper-specific Dungeon Deep Dive memes. Well, you just need a Dungeon Deep Dive subreddit, I think is the solution. <laughs> I think that's the solution. Maybe we can get our own, like, image board going. Oh, no. Right now? Really? <laughs> right In now. this moment? <laughs> I, I, just, I just wanted to see if you can hear it on the, on the mic. Yes. Yeah, I can hear it. Okay, so... Tell you can hear it? Okay. 
lightly dyeing his hair in the middle of this recording, which is a fun development. Well, if you, if you, can't, if you can hear it, then I won't. But I was just going to see if I can get away with it. Uh, you, can, you could not. You could mute your mic. Okay, cool. That's fine. You could mute your mic. Yeah, but then I can't respond. Uh, anyway, uh, we should jump on in and let and have Grace start off. Me. Have we said what topic we're doing? We're doing games. No, we, oh, no, we haven't. I we're doing I games. I can't remember. Okay, we're doing games. Uh, I've been so starved of human interaction, I've forgotten how conversations go. Um, we're doing games. I'm specifically today looking at uh, children's games. Just because, uh, not sure if you've noticed, but uh, can any of you guys ever remember having somebody sit down and teach you how to play half of the games that you played as a kid? Like, did someone sit you down one day and was like, here are the rules to Tiggy? No. In fact, it was pretty controversial when at my school, everyone had so many variations of their rules to handball that the school had to implement official rules. And there was like a riot. Mm-hmm. We had a similar deal uh, with, we were a very big uh, Tiggy school and there were all sorts of like variations where eventually uh, my grade uh, got play got a version of Tiggy that you played on the playground that also doubled as like the floor is lava band uh, because some kid uh, broke their hip. Oh. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. Dear God. Yeah. It was, gr- it was so- good fun. Oh, yeah, clearly always a good idea to let children make up whatever rules they want to whatever games they like. Uh, that mm-hmm. seems like the takeaway from this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, come to think of it, I've never, ever learned the rules to hopscotch. Yeah, you just, like, do it. You just pick it up. Yeah, you just you do know, it. I actually, um... hopscotch, weirdly, is the one I kind of do remember. I remember being in like grade one and another one of, and it it wasn't like a, an official thing. It was just like a grade three kid came over and taught and showed me how to do it. Cause I didn't understand what to do in the double square parts. Um, and so I yeah. remember being taught the rules. That's cute. But it was just like from someone else who happens to have been told them as a kid. Like there was never an ant. It wasn't like I, I like read the, the hopscotch rule book. <laughs> Wait, you never read the hopscotch rule book? Well, I have since, obviously. Um, yeah, but a lot of these games, like they don't have like static um like decided upon rules. These are rules that are like super regional that you learn as a kid generally before you even can remember that you were taught them from like siblings or friends you meet at a park or like older friends from like your parents it's always just like stuff that you pick up before you're able to remember picking it up Hmm. um and a lot of that comes down to like children's culture in terms of like kids go crazy about stuff that adults just like don't understand and don't know where they picked it up from because they all hang out and they have their own little thing going on yeah um and i hmm. imagine that something like tiggy or whatever as well it would be pretty easy to spread because i mean you go up to someone and you hit them a little bit with your hand and then you sprint mm-hmm. in the other direction then like you you now know how to play tiggy that's it <laughs> yeah. That's it. And yeah. then you just keep doing that until everyone's gotten it. Mm. Yeah. Um yeah. Th- 
they're also super easily spread because kids just kind of go wherever their parents go. So if you have a parent that moves house or moves country or you have a parent that just like doesn't want to take you to the park that day so they take you you just like play outside your house every time you go out you're going to a new place and meeting new people which means you're picking up new stuff from everyone you meet or teaching them Hmm. Um, so a lot of these children's games go back centuries and it's literally just like each new generation of kids starts to teach it to whoever they're talking to at the time that's interesting so it's just like like as opposed i guess to adults so if you had such a like formative such a like a specific friend group that you had such like that you'd formed such specific games and rituals and stuff with you'd just stay with them because hmm. mm, they they're like a lot of the time these children's games are aimed at quite a young demographic like 12 or younger and a lot of them don't have like friend groups they just have like a bunch of people that they know that they all hang out with that's true until i was about 14 15 my friends were just like the kids that lived in my street Mm. yeah i mean i even as somebody who went to the same school from prep to 12 um i didn't don't really remember having had like a a friend group per se until i was probably about 12 or 13 yeah, I had like three friends in primary school. Yeah, I think the closest thing I had to a friend group was just the handful of people's houses my mum would let me go over to because <laughs> she liked their parents. Um, so there's also like some children's games that have sort of either come from adults or adults have decided, hey, actually, we like this too and we want to do this. Um so the game Blind Man's Bluff apparently was just like super popular in the courts of Tudor England and um, Henry VIII just went crazy for it. Remind What's me. Blind Man's Bluff. Blind Man's Bluff is essentially like Blind Tiggy where you blindfold someone and then they have to like chase after you. Usually it's in quite a small room and the idea is like you have to like get out of their way or squish up against a wall. But if they wander around, they can hear your footsteps okay, and so they can hear it's you. It's so they're supposed to come and get you. It's land Marco Polo. It's murder in the dark. It's murder in the dark, but like less fun. Well, it's murder in the dark. Because the person who's it can't see you. Well, I mean, that's kind of the point of murder in the dark, right? Is that they can't see you. I guess You're so. You're just giving them the handicap that they were supposed to have by the dark. <laughs> yeah, but apparently, yeah. I mean, if you were a uh, very upper class Tudor England guy, you could hang out with Henry VIII and play Blind Man's Bluff. And if you were in Townsville Youth Theatre in 2012, <laughs> you could have played it with me. I know what I would prefer. <laughs> Tudor England. Oh, absolutely. Every time. <laughs> Off with her head. Am I right, boys? Um, so, I mean, obviously the classic capture the flag, very clearly, uh, like a, a children's version of like a war game. Mm. Um, the idea is, you know, you win your battle by taking your, uh, the other team's flag as you would in quite a lot of old battles. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was basically kids looking at what their parents are doing and they were like, I can do that too. But mum won't let me have a sword, so I guess I'll just, like, tag you and you have to go back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of games yeah. A lot of games come about because parents don't let kids have swords. 
It's weird. You would have think you would have thought at some point in history parents would have been chill. Well, that's how rugby was invented. It was because the government wouldn't let students have guns. They were like, we're not doing that's... war anymore. Um, but it would be nice if you kept fighting each other just in case. So here, take this. And they just threw a rugby ball down. And they were like, go nuts, gang. <laughs> go get them, boys. Keep that war in spirit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so marbles have been found in Pharaoh's tombs and in Aztec ruins. And unlike a lot of children's games, there's no like universal way to play marbles. It's just kind of like whatever country you're in, they've got a different set of rules and a different idea of how playing marbles is supposed to go. Um, but didn't become super popular and widespread until the early 20th century um, when like mass production of glass meant that kids could buy like whole bags of marbles for really cheap. Mm. Um, so originally it was kind of like a humble brag on the schoolyard. You were like, ooh, yes, daddy bought me marbles. Um but then they started making glass in factories and any any shitty little kid could come up and be like, <laughs> look what I bought with my pocket money. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could go so far as to say, though, that there are so many ways of playing marbles that it is actually, there is no longer a way to play marbles anymore. Because that's marbles in my experience, is everyone shows up with such different mm. rules that they are unwilling to reconcile because everyone is eight years old. <laughs> And everyone says, you know what, never mind, we're not playing marbles. And then you never ever play marbles ever in your life, and you just have a hundred marbles in your wardrobe for no reason. Yeah, that's consistent with um, my experiences. My... Yeah, cool. My experience playing marbles was, um, I think I got like a set bought for me at some markets once, and anyone else who had marbles just kind of traded them for the ones they liked best. Like, I'd turn up to school with my marbles, and I wouldn't play a game. I'd just be like, hey, I'll swap you this purple one for that pink one, because I like it better. Yeah, that's that, that was my marbles experience. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um... Hopscotch, classic, mm. uh, evolved from Roman war agility training. Really? Uh, yeah, so they would have um, like uh, sort of obstacle courses set out either either in ropes or drawn onto the ground that you had to go through in full armor. I suppose it kind of is reminiscent, the modern day drill is reminiscent, of, it's the tire um, challenge where they have the tires yeah. you got to run through. Uh, that would have been like the modern equivalent of what they were doing back then. And originally you had to run through it with your whole armor on and your sword and everything. And I guess either kids looked at that happening and thought, hey, I want to play pretend. Or their dads came home and were like, this is a fun thing that I did. Let me show you. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that yeah, taken plus, off. Uh, plus, if you're like, hmm. if you're in the ancient world and like your social status is decided by the fact that like you're, you're like a soldiers family and like your children will be soldiers and your parents were soldiers and you're like living that legacy then it does make sense to get your kids all uh, training training in agility especially at a very young age because Mm -hmm. i mean child labor laws were not a thing so you could be (laughs) yeah yeah just get conscripted at the age of 12 yeah why not i'm sure it's happened Oh, probably. Uh, I think this has come up recently thanks to uh, sort of the resurgence of uh, the plague. 
but ring a ro- uh, like ring around a Rosie or, or it's got a billion names, but um, that as a game has a lot of variations. It's usually the same little rhyming poem and you sit in a circle and um, basically the idea was that you sing your little song and then when they say like we all fall down, you were supposed to like sit down the ground and the last person to sit down the ground had to go into the middle of the circle and like decide who sat down last. So they were like the judge um although when i played it in school it was like you just had to copy the person standing in the middle so you'd sing the song and then they'd like do a pose and the last person to copy their pose had to get in the middle of the circle um that's so weird because that's like that there with the like mimicking element is like every child's game in the world combined into one thing it's like simon Mm -hmm. says meets every circle game ever meets fucking it's basically a drama drama uh, class warm-up yeah yeah um yeah but i thought it was interesting because i didn't realize that was one of those games that had variations of how to play it and i was reading this i was like hold up that's not what i did (laughs) i never even learned it as a game i always was taught it as like I, like I just knew it as a like song. A nursery rhymey dancey thing, yeah. So there's like a ham there's a handful of other games. So it seems like Sleeping Lions seems to be quite a universal classic, which I have a feeling stems from the fact that many parents ask their children to lie down and be quiet. Yeah. For a little bit. Yeah, I imagine that one didn't come from the kids. <laughs> hey, we're uh... gonna play the quiet game. I did love it as a kid, though. Fucking any excuse to just lie down. Yeah. Wow, have you been like this forever? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I loved Sleeping Lions. I want Sleeping Lions every time. Every every, every single um, time. I lost it once when I was three in preschool and never since. I have a, I have a history with Sleeping Lions because uh, I did know it as a game and in grade one I think we had to play it and it was like before lunchtime and like whoever won the game got to go out for lunch early or something but the teachers were going around they'd like lift up your arm and see how like loose and like floppy you were Um, and I was like that's that's not the rules you're not allowed to do that that's interference um yes um, I'm still a little salty about it because I was like, this isn't how it's done. You're cheating. Um, and then you've got like skipping games for which there's a billion songs, only some of which I remember. Um, like skipping rope? S- yeah, yeah, skipping rope. So either just like the single rope or like a double dutch. It seems like the double dutch one comes specifically from rope weavers who would like weave the rope and their assistants would have to jump through the rope in order to like give them stuff (laughs) Um, and I guess kids just looked at that and they were like hey that's cool and they were right yeah that's very they were right I never learned I never learned how to do double dutch and I was always so jealous of the girls that could okay when we get out we're learning double dutch yeah okay yes um so bloody knuckles Oh, that's the... If you remember that game. That one? Mm-hmm. You put your two fists together and you basically have to, like, hit each other on the top of the 
fist as hard as possible until either somebody gives up or they like flinch and pull back. See, yeah. Uh, Inter- interestingly, um, and this I guess leads uh, it's just like a fun foreshadowing for my topic. I actually only ever learnt that as chicken, and it wasn't until much later in my life that I realized that chicken meant a bigger thing than just that game of hitting your hands together. (laughs) I I really thought that like that and the version where you slap each other's hand, I really thought Hmm. that was like, that was the whole thing. That's all. Because chickens, the chicken I knew closer to jousting. I was like unskilled jousting. Well, run as hard as you can at each other and then be the one that doesn't flinch. Uh, and I always flinched because I was friends with crazy people who would Wait. just just barrel through me. Sorry, that's the version you played at school? In year five, it got banned. Oh my god, yeah, I bet. It got Jesus. banned shortly before Bull Rush got banned. <laughs> Bull Rush got banned at my school too! I'm not surprised. We called it Red Rover. Man. Yeah, we had Red, Red Rover and Bull I, Rush, pretty similar. Yeah. I think us kids called it Red Rover, but the teachers called it Bull Rush. So I think that might be a generational thing. I think we yeah, had the opposite. Actually, I think mine was the same as Grace's. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the last one I have written down here is the knife game, which I remember <laughs> not from being a little kid. Which I remember not from being a little kid, but from being like an edgy teenager where all the guys in class would do it with their like sharpened rulers. Oh God, yeah. Um, apparently that's a, like a universal children's game, either with um, like a knife, I guess, if you've got cool parents or just like sticks and pencils and stuff. And the idea was just like, how many times can you do it? Can you, can you flex to your friends? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, we had a... pencils were used a lot. Uh, no serious injuries in my grade, I don't think. We used scissors. I never did it, but everyone that I, that did it around me used scissors. It was pretty fucked up. Mm. Um, but that's a that's a sailor's game originally, right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yep, it came from sailors. It was sort of like a betting game where you'd like bet against someone. It was also sort of like, I mean, the same way we use it to be like cool and edgy and show off. They were like, I'm a big, tough sailor. Look at my big knife and look at how good I am. Mm. Well, yeah, because um, there was a period where to be a sailor, you would just show up at a port and kind of show off until you got, like, a captain's attention and put on the <laughs> ship. Like, you were just uh, one of a random assortment of sailors at port that day. So, like, That really does like that. provide so much context for any sort of depiction of sailors you have historically because it's all so very showy and that suddenly all makes sense yeah i mean i think it's a big part of why um other than just for like personal commemoration it's also probably a big part i think it's a big part of why sailors get like the specific tattoos for different accomplishments and stuff it's like a resume yeah showing off at port and gambling and being like loud and strong and drinking and playing like a knife game and stuff all you're doing is just flexing for captains to be fair, also, I'd get cool tattoos and show off and be, like, kind of a big head about it if I was doing one of the most physically demanding and important jobs in, like, a historical city. Oh, you'd be a fool not to. If I was a, if I was a ripped sailor, I'd be like, yeah, 
yeah, look at my big knife and look at my big cats. <laughs> like, um, yeah, but that's all I brought. It was sort of like looking at how universal these games were and the fact that uh, Lachlan and I grew up on two different sides of a state and, in fact, across two states, and yet every single one of these games we've both played. Hmm. Tully, you're from Brisbane too, right? I'm from Sunshine Coast, so I'm a little bit north of you. Yeah, but mm -hmm. I mean, I learned all of these games in Sydney, and I know them mm -hmm. by, it sounds like, pretty much the same rules as you guys as well, more or less. Yeah, more or less. Yep. Um, and, like, also a lot of these games came from, from you know, England, f from Aztecs, from Romans, and, like, these are all games that we have played now in, like, a very modern era that they have been playing forever, despite the fact that, like, children don't really have, like, history books they whip out on the playground. Exactly. Um, well, great. Thanks for that, Grace. Um, so now I suppose I just want to take a step back for a moment, um, kind of zoom out a little, and I want to talk about games in a broader sense, specifically through the lens of game theory. Um, and I think that game theory can be useful for a few different things in terms of D&D specifically. And so that's what I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to break from my norm a little bit and actually talk about Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of. So. There's always game, a kind of. Game, <laughs> look. Look, I, so game theory uh, <laughs> is essentially, it's a way to model conflicts. It's a way to look uh, empirically at situations where multiple different actors, all with their own interests, um, are forced into a situation, a game, where they have limited options of what they can do, or at the very least limited outcomes that they could achieve. Um, and so game theory looks at these these interactions, um, things like, and I mean, it, it can be anything. It can be anything from a game of chess um, to, any, I mean, it's anything. It's any game, really. Mm. Um, I, I was going to give more examples, but there's too many. There's, I mean, there's actually a really interesting... Um, debate sorry to deal derail just a little bit but there's actually oh, a really interesting debate over what actually qualifies as a game um, because there's mm. a number of different definitions that are sort of generally accepted let me just find it here um okay cool so the first philosopher to actually define the word game uh, was a person by the name of ludwig wittgenstein um now, Wittgenstein argued that elements of games needed... They needed play, they needed rules, and they needed competition. But they ad failed to adequately define what a game is. So, Wittgenstein concluded that people apply the term game to a range of disparate human activities that bear to one another only what one might call family resemblances. Uh, this was not the final sort of definition, though. A lot of people had a crack at it. Um, Roger... Roger Kailua, I think is how you pronounce it. Kaiwa. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's it's a French name, but it's not. I'm not familiar with how exactly to pronounce it. Um, but it's in his book Games and Men, and defined a game as an activity that needed fun, uh, 
So it needed to be light-hearted character. It needed to be... It is circumscribed in time and place. I am not exactly sure what that means there, uh, but it well, needs to be uncertain. I think it just means that it needs to be over a specific period of time in a specific location. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So it's got to be it fun. Be... It's got to be a defined like time period. Uh, mm. The outcome has to be uncertain. Uh, it can't be productive. It has to be governed by rules, and it has to be fictitious. So it's accompanied by an awareness that this is a different reality. Mm. Um, so that's yeah. that's the definition that took over there. But yeah, there's there's a bunch of other sort of definitions that people have had a go at. Uh, it looks like though it's very contentious even to this day. Mm. Yeah, it's. I mean, because realistically, it really just depends on the context. I think a lot of the disagreement about it comes more from a disagreement between not a disagreement, a clash between disciplines more than a an actual clash mm. in understanding. Because, yeah, in some contexts, games do have to be trivial. They would be called what um, some computer scientists would call hedonic information systems. Um, uh, so essentially a program that only exists for self-pleasure, something that's hedonistic. Um, um, it's interesting but... to bring up different, uh, different fields as well, because the, of the three definitions that feature the most prominently just on the Wikipedia page, I'm not that much of a researcher. Um, <laughs> one is a philosopher, one's a sociologist and one's a game designer. So they all have very different mm. fields. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at games more in the, I suppose more in the philosophical context, but by way of maths. Um, which will hopefully become uh, even remotely scrutable uh, by the end of this. Um, so cool, I've got my for... whiteboard, I'm ready to go. <laughs> for our purposes, um, a game is just any interaction between uh, multiple players. Um, it doesn't matter what those players are or what they're doing or why they're doing it. Just any interaction between multiple players where each player chooses from a set of possible actions. Um, and, and that has to mean, that essentially enables each player to create a strategy, like a, a set of rules to guide them through the game. Um, so in game theory, in the context of game theory, it's used in a few games, games are looked at uh, in a few different ways. Sometimes economists are using them to try and explain or predict like markets and stuff. Um, it's not a perfect system, obviously, but it can be useful to look at like game logic when you're dealing with things like that. Um, I think the more interesting the more interesting use of it though is the like kind of psychological sociological view which sees game theory as just part of how you explain rationality in general. It's essentially the idea that we are all using game logic when we come to a situation. We don't always follow game logic, but it's part of our rational decision-making every time if it's something we're capable of. Um, so it's less a way of predicting outcomes and more a way of 
understanding a big part of like the rational decision making process so there are a couple of things that you need to know when you're dealing with this sort of thing um you need to first work out if each of the players in your game know what the other person has done if it's a sequential game um so that would be like a game like chess where you see oh white moved this pawn here and so i'm going to do this in response and yeah. you work that way um that way you can map it out as like a tree essentially um otherwise you're dealing with a simultaneous game which is a game where it doesn't necessarily mean that you're making your moves at the same time it just means that you don't know what the other person's done until you've both done your thing mm. so it's the difference between here's the best example of it take a game of chicken for instance um imagine uh because chicken is probably best to best defined as a type of game more than anything else um, yeah it's just a game where two forces are two forces are going to collide their intentions are completely opposed to each other and if neither mm. of them give in then it's essentially mutually assured destruction it's the worst possible outcome for all of them so that would be what they would both rank as their lowest so we'll put that as so say that's zero then yeah. your other options the other possible outcomes are you don't give in and go straight through if they move out of your way so they give up and you get everything you want so that would be your best option so that'd be like number so that'd be three so your next best option other than obviously just getting through and getting what you want is if both of you stop then neither of you get it but you don't have them beating you um and then obviously the other option not your worst option but your next two is if they succeed and you move out of their way because that way you don't die in the car crash let um but obviously it's not what you want sorry i'm <laughs> tully is drawing and i'm eager to see what this looks like um, tully has a whiteboard um, uh that he's been using yeah i'm, I'm trying to visual i'm trying to visualize what's going on by putting it all on a whiteboard so i'm going to take some photos they're not going to be particularly interesting but they're going to go up on the instagram i think uh because they're yeah. vaguely squarish um, yeah if you want a visual reference then there'll be one up on the socials but the important thing to remember is two cars coming together. If they hit each other, they both die. If one of them moves, the other one gets through. And if both of them stop, then both of them are safe. Now, if you're playing a normal game of chicken, you don't know what the other person's going to do until it's far too late. So your best option is always going to be to move out of the way because that way you avoid dying. You avoid the worst possible outcome. But this changes if you have more options available to you. Then, you, if you're dealing with a situation where you can still where you can see what the other person's doing, and they have the option to say, rip out their steering wheel so they can't move out of the way, then you are forced to move out of their way. Um, so committed. Hmm? Sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt the flow. Quick question: Which is the worst? Uh, result in this scenario for let's say player one is it for both of you to crash into each other or is it for player two to win 
the worst outcome would be to both crash into each other because then you'd die. Excellent. Yeah. That's why chicken's a good way to look at it because the worst option is not an option. You can't let that happen. Um, so no rational person is going to keep going. But then you add in the option to commit and to broadcast that you're committing. And all of a sudden, the other person's options change and you force their hand. They have to move out of the way because you've shown that you can't. Um, and I mean, that's there are examples of that in history. Um, there was a French military leader mm. uh, by the name of Cortez who was uh, invading um, some Aztec territory. And he had a pretty small force, so they landed at shore. And he realized that his soldiers could all see this paradox. He feared that they would notice because, I mean, if you're a soldier, it's just a game of chicken. You either know that if you stay, you could be killed. And, I mean, if your military force is strong, then do they really need you? But if it's weak, then... So they could not leave. And if you leave, then... I mean, you avoid dying. So that's why people shoot defectors. And what Cortez did was they landed in the Aztec's territory and he burned their ships down. But he burned... So they couldn't go back. But he burned them down in view of the Aztecs. So they saw that they'd committed and the rationality then then changes. The whole thing changes for everyone because the soldiers are forced to stay and to fight the strongest they can because it's that or certain death. Yeah, so there was no there was no possibility of them running away, so they were going to fight as hard as they can, could to the end. The Aztecs, on the other hand, Exactly. And the Aztecs, on the other hand, saw a military commander so confident in his, defi- in, his, in his victory for a reason that they couldn't ascertain that he destroyed their only means of leaving right in front of them. And so the Aztecs fled. There was no battle. This is not something that I'm entirely familiar with, but I am familiar with that Cortes was a very, very clever stra- uh, yeah, strategist. It's, it, um, uh, I... The description I was reading of it earlier described it as the easiest military bet victory in history. He burned down some ships and they won. Jeez. The enemy fled. Because you don't, if you don't know why they're committing, you just have to leave. Um, and so that's kind of how you can model these things into real life scenarios. Um, if you, yeah, I thought it would be interesting as a DM to take these situations, take something like a game of chicken or uh, the prisoner's dilemma is a good one. Um, that's the that's the game where two prisoners have to either confess to the police and get a light sentence uh, and get like a, a medium sentence or not confess. And if the other person does, then they'll go to jail forever. And if the other person doesn't, then they'll get the best the the lightest possible sentence so everyone can agree to be like oh we won't talk to the cops and get the light sentence but then if you do that you know you're leaving open the door for them to fuck you over and so you have to confess every single time because you get an okay outcome or you get completely free 
because the police punished the other person. I think that'd be really fun to do with, um, you know how like every party gets attached to that one NPC, you know? Mm. I think it'd be really fun to do that with that one favorite NPC where it's like, okay, so you don't want to risk your life for this person that you did just meet three days ago and you think he's funny because he's got a funny name. Are you are you going to do it? No, I mean, you could do it with the whole party. Put the party in different rooms, talk to them individually, see how much the characters trust each other. <laughs> them all agree. You guys are very bold discussing this the day before I plan for our next session. Oh, I know. Um... No, it's... <laughs> um, it's fine. I don't really our party doesn't really know each other uh we're just here for a laugh mm -hmm. so um i mean you're not wrong <laughs> but and yeah and i also think that it's useful from a player's perspective because i feel like so often we don't the thing that stumps me as a player and stumps players that i've dm'd is not having a framework to 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 go through options to like not having mm. any i mean this is this is already as a player helping me contextualize what I'm going to do in your campaign uh, when the shit that just hit the fan hits the yeah. fan. Yeah, exactly. It's a good way because if you know more or less what the other person can do and you know more or less what you can do and you know more or less what the possible outcomes are, you can start planning things out and you can look at it and you can be like, will I see what they're doing first? Okay, that way I can plan for every option. Will I, if I don't, then I just have to pick the one that's most likely to be good. Um, I would flag for anyone, any DMs out there, because it's obviously easier if you're a player, um, because you're just using it as a way to like work out what your good options are. But if you're a DM and you're trying to predict what players are going to do, then I would just flag a couple of different things, because as any astute listener may have noticed, this doesn't in this doesn't necessarily entirely model to what people are actually going to do. It is really just about what people are go what people will think about when they're doing it. Um, so there are a couple of like paradoxes when you bring like human emotions into it. Um, one of them is like the regret aversion uh, theory, which essentially says that you're not going to pick the option necessarily that's going to get you your most preferable outcome or that's most likely to get you preferable outcomes. You're going to go for the option that is going to minimize anticipated regret. Um, so you can see that in situations where like, for instance, so say you've got two briefcases. Uh, one of them has definitely a million dollars in it. The other one has an 89% chance of a million dollars, a 10% chance of $5 million, and a 1% chance that it'll have nothing. Uh, the, like, utility theory, uh, the, the, like, traditional idea of looking at game theory uh, would predict that you'd pick the one that, ha that could have $5 million in it. Because, I mean, if there's an essentially they expect you to disregard any similarities between the two like both have minimum 89 percent chance of a million dollars so you just look at the last 11 percent, and one of them yeah. is an 11 percent chance of a million and one of them's a 10 percent chance of five million and a one percent chance of nothing so you go with the better one 
Yeah. However, people don't. They go with a million. They take the guaranteed every time because what they're actually avoiding is the small risk that they will regret not taking the first the first option. It's interesting that you bring this up. I was actually thinking about the Monty Hall problem, which is, you know, that the, the classic thought experiment. Well, maybe not classic, but the thought experiment. You've got three doors. Uh, behind one of them is a prize. You pick one, and the host of this magical game show that you're on, you're in a game show now, um, mm-hmm. says, okay, now I'm going to reveal what's behind one of the other doors. Behind one of the other doors, there's nothing. And then offers you the choice to switch to the final door. Now, theoretically, when you chose at the beginning, you had a one-third chance of any of those being the prize. But now, now that the other door's been opened, for either of the doors that are there, the one you selected or the one, the new one. So, yeah, so now for the new door, there's actually a 50% chance that that's got the prize. But people will always, almost always stick with their original door. Um, there must be a psychological trick where, again, they couldn't bear the, the regret of moving away from the prize door. Well, I mean, and and I think the game theorists take on that was to... one eternity later at this point we proceeded to get carried away with the monty hall problem for about 45 minutes it was an incredibly in-depth conversation in which we came to some conclusions about the assumptions we'd made about the game point is though it was boring to you and irrelevant to you so we've cut that and um, on with the show help. hey it was boring to me don't rope me into this i went on twitter i had yeah, no true. horse in this race <laughs> Um, what the fuck was I even talking about? So I think the final thing that's probably important to keep in mind is this thing called the Ellsberg paradox, which is essentially that if you're given the chance to take a risk that you understand versus a risk that you don't, you're going to take the risk that you know, even if there's a chance that the other one's less. So Hmm. imagine that you are standing in front of an urn. And in the urn is uh, 90 multicolored balls. 30 of those balls are red. 60 of them, the other 60, are either black or yellow. You have no idea. Uh, And you don't know the proportion. You don't know the proportion. You have no way to work it out. If you were given the option to get... If If you were told... Yeah, if you're given the option between a $100 prize if you pick a red ball or a $100 prize if you pick a black ball, people will almost always pick the red ball. Even though there's only a 30% chance because you don't know what the chance of the black ball is. Yeah, it could be one or it could be 69. Yeah, so if you're looking at it from like the idea of min-maxing, then there is a good argument to be made for for the black ball. Um, but if you're looking at it from, like, the way people actually do it, every single time, people are going to pick the thing that they understand the risk of. Um, on the other hand, if you're told you can get $100, take a ball out. If it's red or yellow, you'll get $100. If you're told you can pick that or the same deal, but it's a black or yellow ball, then again, because you don't know the proportion of yellow, but you do know the proportion of black and yellow, you'll pick black and yellow every time, even though you don't know what either of the balls are. Um, yeah. So, 
the idea is just people are always going to pick something that they can understand, something they can conceptualize. If they know what yeah, that makes sense, and the benefits involved are, then they're going to go with that. It's less intimidating as an option. Um, so if you ever find that you're like planning a planning a a quest or something that involves um, that involves like a, a a series of of like different approaches or whatever and you make it clear that one of those approaches is very dangerous and don't explain the rest of them then you're running a good chance of putting your party of your party picking that really dangerous option just because they know what they're getting in so it's just like i don't know it's just an interesting way to kind of like trick your party into doing things yeah uh trying to get your party to do what you want them to do i imagine isn't easy considering i have been a party and uh every time i finish a session i'm like we didn't do anything we've done nothing (laughs) yeah yeah so that's i've yeah uh, on a side note from a player perspective I love playing dumb shit characters now because it means you don't get caught with the analysis paralysis. You can comfortably in character say, I'm making a decision. It's probably wrong. <laughs> that uh, and it's helps. so freeing. It's so freeing. I would highly recommend it. Play a character with no intelligence and very little wisdom. So I guess the takeaways from this episode are plan things out and pretend that they're a simple game. Or do whatever the fuck you want. And there's kind yeah. of your options. I I like to play my characters and make decisions as if I'm writing in fan fiction, in which case it is whatever I think will cause the most drama. Whatever I think is narratively fun. No internal conflict at all. Just, would this be <laughs> cool? Yeah, I, that's, is that's it cool? consistent. That's consistent. I mean, it works. Anyway, yeah, absolutely. thanks for listening to my incredibly dry uh, explanation of theoretical uh, uh, mathematical thought experiments. Um, I don't know. I just thought it could be an interesting like way to kind of map things out in your head or when you're doing tabletop games. Yeah, that's lots of fun. And it's a great way as a GM and as a player to kind of conceptualize options because suddenly you get this idea of, oh, okay, there is this perceived risk-reward situation. Yeah, yeah. There's usually only so many things that a party can realistically do. Because, like, technically you can do anything. Uh, Just like technically on the Monty Hall show, you could actually pull out a knife and kill Monty and open all three doors. Like, you're allowed to do that. And Dungeons & Dragons allows for that. Um, But if you present your players with those doors then unless you start using like some other psychological trickery or there's like other context involved, they're mm. going to do what the model says they're going to do. Present two options. They're going to choose one of them. Yeah. Yeah. People aren't going to take options that you don't present to them unless you give them a really good reason to do that because they don't understand what the risks are. They don't understand what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so... so on that, I might take us to a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a slice of life then, uh, a little bit further removed from the statistics and the, the game theory of, of actions. Thank um, God. 
Yeah, I know, right? Uh, I, I'm starting to get a bit of a headache. Um, yeah, what kind of no, so what I'm talk about that for two hours? I know, right? Um, <laughs> so I'm going to take us back to uh, Southeast Asia, uh, somewhere between the, the 5th and 6th century BC. Uh, now, this is the time of Buddha, uh, the real person Buddha. Now, Buddha uh, had a lot of disciples, obviously, huge following, and was a, a relig religious leader, as we're aware, um, and often gave sermons uh, as to various sort of different things. Uh, now, Buddha, the Buddha once gave a sermon to a group of monks uh, outlining all the games that he refused to play and that his disciples should also refuse, uh, abstain from playing. It's like the now, there's the Facebook list. <laughs> imagine, imagine. God, I hate that. Um, imagine waking up. But... Uh, imagine waking up and you like go over to Buddha's house to check the list on his front door to see if you've been put on the AFOB list. <laughs> imagine going to the Buddha's house to check what's on the games list and you find your name. <laughs> Do you want to play around? I'll make you a game. Yeah, me, you find your um, name on the on the Buddha's banned games list. This is my new TikTok account. Please. <laughs> Um, so essentially there's, there's a bit of debate as to what exactly the Buddha meant by this, but the generally accepted thought is that this was a sermon, uh, devoted to a group of monks and historically, uh, throughout Buddhism, monks were held to a higher standard, uh, as far as all the observances than your, your everyday folk. Now, it also means that they would have been living in a temple uh, subsisting on the arms that people paid. So they were essentially living in a temple being paid for to attain enlightenment. That's a pretty sweet and thing. Yeah. And so the thought of what this means is because they were living on donations, they couldn't afford to be spending time on games. They had to be taking time to attain enlightenment. Um, oh, like people had to get their money's worth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so essentially it's thought that Buddha was saying, Hey, you can't be wasting time. Here's a bunch of ways that I've seen you guys wasting time. Now, so it really there is actually like an ancient call out post. <laughs> it's an ancient call out post. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so essentially this was a uh, delivered to a group of bhikkhus. I don't know again how to pronounce that. Uh, Sanskrit is difficult to get pronunciations for in English because, uh, well, it's a different script, so everything I'm reading is an anglicization. Um, That'll do it. Yeah, it makes it very difficult. But essentially, it was addressing a group of monks to say, hey, you guys are being paid for. Stop this shit. Uh, now, there is actually a little bit of fun wordplay in there, uh, from what I can gather. Uh, unfortunately, it is in Sanskrit, so it's very difficult to decode. But there is a little bit I wanted to share before I got into what games he actually mentioned. And that is... Um, Pariyapata, uh, which is the name for hopscotch, or the the, uh, the variant of hopscotch. It happened around a circle. Uh, it's also... God, that's so good. I love that the monks were just dicking around playing hopscotch mm. so much that Buddha had to tell them not to. Uh, well, and essentially there's... That's so funny. That Pariyapata actually also means uh, the roundabout way or a circular path. And so this was 
this is thought by some people to be like a subtle dig at like you need to be following the path of enlightenment, not the path of hopscotch. Fuckers. Um, <laughs> now, the other one is uh, Gatika, which is uh, a, a stick game that I'll go into, but it's also the name for the period of 24 minutes, which is thought to be the ideal time for training to meditate, uh, and it's also the name of an alms bowl for collecting uh, tribute for... Let's say collecting arms to keep the monks subsistent. So it is thought, again, to be a dig at, hey, you are on borrowed time here. Stop it. Uh, I just, Was it because they were spending 24 minutes playing this cu- this game? Uh, well, look, who knows? Um, but yeah, it was. It's, it's again thought to be... He used specific terms for these games that may not have been the, the widely used terms so that it had this double meaning. Um, oh. yeah, but, uh, that's, that's sort of more about what Buddha said, um, about the games themselves. So this is, remember, this is fifth and sixth century, uh, BC. So this is, uh, in Asia. So this is a long time ago. Um, although bearing in mind the earliest, the earliest, uh, recorded dice were found as early as dating back to about 3000 BC. So this is a long time after dice have been invented. Um, but there's a couple of different games that they found. So there were board and tabletop games, essentially. Um, there's one called Ashtapada, which is similar to similar in play style to backgammon, but played on an 8x8 board, like a chessboard. And the idea is uh, mm-hmm. you have a bunch of cowrie shells that you can flip, and if they show a star then that's that's uh, one. And if they show uh, nothing, that's a zero. And so you flip four cowrie shells. And if you get uh, all, uh, however many stars you had facing up, that was worth moving your tokens by one. If you had them all facing down, then that was worth eight. And essentially like backgammon, you had to put your tokens onto the board you had to race them around the outside, and then you had to race them back and get them off the board. And again, like backgammon, if your opponent landed on a square that you were on, then you that token was out. Okay. Yeah, so it's very similar to backgammon. It's just pa- played on an 8x8 board. Okay. Now, the next one is uh, Dasapada, which is essentially a variation of the same game played on a 10x10 board. Not all that different. Um but there is actually some speculation. Apparently, both of these games had variations played with dice rather than cowrie shells. So it is worth noting that this is also included in dice games, which are te- tend to be linked to gambling. So yeah, then there's uh, Akasa, which is... Uh, the, the other names translate to uh, Ashtapada played in the sky. And the idea is that they would just play it like blind chess. Uh, it's just imagining the moves that they're making. Um, That's like the worst version of chess. <laughs> I mean, some people get a kick out of it. A uh, kid in my grade in year six made a point of playing bl- blind chess and he was too fucking good at it. Um, yeah, because it's impossible to play blind chess. That's fucking stupid. Oh, All you have to do is have a memory of what's on the board. It's just fucked that they can remember that. 
Um, yeah, it's like, but that's what I'm saying. Like, nobody can play blind chess except for the person who dedicates themselves to playing blind chess. So I don't think it's a very fair competition. Oh, uh, yeah. He, he also played jazz saxophone. Well, that explains it. I was going to say, if I knew somebody who dedicated themselves to playing blind chess, that's not someone I want to play blind chess with. Like, that doesn't... Exactly. Like, that's like that kid that's really good at a video game coming up to you and being like, oh, do you want to verse me? Like, do you want to do you want to play against me? And I'm like, no, because you're going to win, obviously. And it comes it comes out to that uh, there has to be uncertainty in the outcome for it to be a game. It's not a game if you're definitely going to win. Yeah. Yeah, there has to be some chance of... Or at the very least of different good options. Yeah, I'm not going to go playing Fortnite against Ninja. It's just it's not going to happen. Um, um, but think of it. Actually, you know what? I probably would play Fortnite against Ninja because actually, because yeah, you could come second. Like you could come second. Well, there's also there's so many other factors in Fortnite that there actually there's always a chance that Ninja's going to be killed. True. I'm not going to play Smash against one of the champions. Um, yeah, that's probably a, that's, that, yeah, that one, you got me there. So, uh, I often babysit I'd my- I'd kick ninjas off. <laughs> yeah, you could. Um, I often babysit my cousins and they've recently gotten old enough that they're allowed to play their dad's old PlayStation 2 and they were playing this like car racing game and it was so funny because the, uh, the, their like eldest sister, every time it gets to the last lap and she's not in first place, she restarts the game. She's like, why? <laughs> She's like, why would I want to play if I'm not going to win? She is also always racing against her little brother, and she won't let him win out of pity or kindness. It's straight up. If I'm not going to win, what's the point of playing? I'm going to restart this game. That's crazy. Last time I babysat them, I had to sit there with the PlayStation like console in my lap, so she couldn't reach over with her chubby little fingers and like turn it off i mean i guess it like it makes sense again from like a game theory perspective it's objectively the best it's the best option option. Mm. that's fucked up Uh, you're old girls am i right yeah uh so uh there's there's the blind chess version uh then the next one is actually one that we still tend to play now um it's a game called sun ticker which is, it's games where you add or remove from a pile. And the closest analog we have to this is pickup sticks. Essentially, you have to place down uh, sticks, especially made like toothpicks in a pile, and then pick them back up without disturbing the pile. I've played that game. Yeah, exactly. We still play this. Um, yeah, I a, I got like I got like I a mean, bundle for, for like Christmas from an aunt or something, and they were just like long, skinny, rainbow-colored sticks, and she was like, "Yeah, it's a hmm. game." I was like, "I've never heard of this, but all right." I mean, it's also just Jenga. Yeah, it's I mean, Jenga Jenga would fit Jenga. into this category the way it's written because it's games where you add or remove from a pile. So Jenga would be yeah. in that vein. Um, yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing about these, and that's probably why I think that they're useful for our purposes, mostly, is, like, all of these games are really just, like, they're all just categories, and mm. you can map kind of anything onto this. Like, you could just as easily map uh, political relations onto this as you could Jenga. You know? Exactly. It's crazy. Um, and then the last sort of game, of the tabletop game that he talks about is is... Kalika, which just refers to dice games in general. 
So this is thought to just mean essentially gambling. Uh, it's probably something akin to craps. Um, obviously not going to be analogous, but it's it's that's close enough to the vibe we're going for um, because yeah. there's just no record. These things are most of the time were spoken record. And so there's not really much, at least in English language texts, that describes the games. Yeah, I mean, especially if the Buddha is outlawing them. Like, mm. I imagine it becomes a lot harder to spread your word-of-mouth rules for your gambling game if the Buddha's putting signs on everyone's door saying, stop gambling arms or I'll kick you out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, the people around the place were believably still playing it because a lot of these games have continued. But, yeah, the people oh, in the monastery, not so much. Um, yeah. So then there's a bunch of physical games that he talks about. Um, things like marking diagrams on the floor to walk in certain places. So this is a game like uh, Vinaya Pitaka, which means having drawn a circle with various lines on the ground, there they play avoiding the line to be avoided. Um, so basically <laughs> they draw on the ground and they avoid the, the lines. Uh, and it's potentially a part of this is called uh, Pariha Pata, which is a form of hopscotch. It's, it's something similar oh, to yes, hopscotch, sorry. just played in a, in a circle. Have, have you ever played... Um, it's like a version of hopscotch that's played in a spiral. It's it's like French. It's, es it's just... They literally just call it escargot. Escargot? Yeah. I've, I've played... I think I have played it or something similar. And it sounds like this is something similar to it as well. Um, and again, mm. this is that, that same double entendre that was supposed to be like... Uh, uh, yeah, you should be on the path to enlightenment, not the path to hopscotch. Um, I really mm -hmm. love the idea of these monks just like hanging out playing hopscotch. Hmm. <laughs> right. Um. Oh, yeah. then okay. Here is a really interesting one. So this is Gatika, which is the modern name for this one is called Tipcat or Gillydanda, and it is described as hitting a short stick with a long stick. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's my favorite game. Well, actually, if you quickly uh, just check out, uh, look up online, uh, check out on YouTube or something, Tipcat. Uh, so T-I-P-C-A-T. -T. Um, it looks really fun because essentially what you've got is the short stick that they're talking about is sort of like a bullet shape almost. It's like a thick in the middle and thin on the sides. And what you've got to do is place it on the ground. You hit the, the short stick to make it bounce up in the air and then you've got to hit it in the air as far as you can. Uh, imagine playing imagine playing baseball if you have to serve the ball to yourself. Yeah, yeah, except the ball is a stick. Except the ball is a stick and you've really got to hard. serve it from the ground with a stick. Yeah, you have to hit it really hard so it bounces in the air. <laughs> yeah, but the footage of it looks so fun uh, and it and there is video footage of it being played authentically, so clearly it is a game that is still being played, uh, even even oh, to this yeah. day. I'm uh, I'm looking just like Google Images. There's heaps of it. Yeah, um, it is like equal representation. Uh, there is there is equal representation of like modern versions versus like ancient, just ancient drawings. Yeah, exactly. Fact, actually, you scroll a little bit further, and it's just modern versions. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, and I love that this is something that is clearly still in rotation that is specifically from South Asia. Like, it, it hasn't really reached the Western world or hasn't 
lived in the Western world. Uh, I love discovering this sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so then there's, really cool. um, in there, there's also Aka, which means ball games, and then Mokachika, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, turning somersaults. So essentially, roly-poly. Um, then Fair enough. We've, we've I got guess a, I just can't imagine monks doing that. No, just no. Just rolling around on the floor. You can't really, but apparently. Um, it's a bunch of like Tibetan Buddhist monks just <laughs> rolling I mean, around the monastery. It gets easier to to kind of contextualize if you think about it through the lens of monks being devoted from the age of childhood. So if you think about it in the terms of, to use a pop culture reference, Aang from Avatar, um, suddenly it makes much more sense to imagine monks playing games like this. That's true. And I guess, unlike a lot of kids, they're then stuck for their whole lives with their childhood friend groups. So you're probably just going to play dumb games forever. <laughs> exactly. Um, then there's uh, imagination games. So there's a ton of imagination games that they used to play. Um, Salakahata is an interesting one. Um, have you ever played the doodle game? It's where somebody draws just a quick, like, uh, a weird squiggle. And you have to draw something using that squiggle. Oh, yeah. I used to play that in picture chat with people. Yeah, perfect. So it is yeah. essentially that. So what they would do, they would dip their hands uh, with their fingers outstretched in lac or red dye or flower water, and then they would strike the wet hand on the ground or a wall and yell out, what shall it be? And uh, other people would have to then make uh, an image out of it, whether it be, and they would show oh, the form fun. required. Yeah. I like that. And I think the way it's described, it sounds like they hit the wall, say, what shall it be? Uh, and everyone calls out what they think it should be. And then you've got to make that image out of that that thing. That's fun. Yeah. I like that. Um, it's a good game. Then there's uh, Akarika, which is guessing the letters traced with the finger in the air or on a friend's back. Um, oh, good. I'm glad that that's a timeless one. Hmm. Which is interesting uh, if you think about the fact that this was in uh, Sanskrit. Because mm -hmm. if you have a look at Sanskrit symbols, I feel like these would be much less, much more inscrutable than any Roman script, anything with the Roman alphabet. Well, yeah, because I mean, this is a game that exists in, in, in like... Uh in places that use the roman alphabet but we but like we don't do it in the air you no draw letters in the air to show kids how to write letters on the page like it's that obvious that it's like a demonstration of how to write like mm. you'd only ever do that on someone where they couldn't see yeah and that's the thing is this having a look at sanskrit yeah maybe it's just that the symbols are less familiar but it's all based on similar shapes so it would be a lot more difficult i would i would imagine um, I, like, kind of like how it would be harder to tell between, like, if you're doing in the air, like a Q and a P and an A and a C mm. would be like harder than like, you could tell if it was a Z. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's another one that has survived and prospered, uh, perhaps been independently invented in a bunch of different places. Um, then there's two more Manasika and, uh, Vathavaya, which is guessing a friend's thoughts and imitating deformities um Ooh. that last one kind of comes out of nowhere but um yeah jesus yeah that yeah, was a I game that the buddha, buddha to bed. put to bed yeah yes so that's you know that last one's a little bit unsavory um which is why i didn't leave it till the end uh then there's a little depiction of a couple of different toys that they had 
So there are a bunch of games with toys. Um, so blowing through a, a patkulal, which is a, a pipe made of leaves. So it's just basically a little toy pipe made of reeds. Um, then there's plowing with a toy plow. Uh, or translation issues uh, may mean that that's uh, using a toy fish hook. Uh, and it's thought that this was more so condemned because of the potential for um, its connotations with animal cruelty or at, with uh, consumption of animals. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, then there's Singalika, uh, uh, Singalika, uh, which is playing with toy windmills made from palm leaves. Padalaka, uh, uh, playing with toy measures made from palm leaves. So little measuring cups, which is something we still see today. Um, That's true. There's uh, Rathaka, which is playing with toy carts or toy chariots. And uh, Danuka, which is playing with toy bows, which again, you see in the modern era. Yeah, and all of these are just like regular kids stories. Exactly. And so the reason that I brought this is because it's a lovely sort of snapshot in time of different things that realistically have existed since the fifth since the sixth century bc so this is 2700 years at least um 2007 no 2500 years at least um and yeah. so as far as a historical context any of these things are conceivably games that anyone could be playing uh, and so if you're ever after everyday things that people are doing any one of these is a good place to start. I mean, they could be playing with the toy windmill. They could be uh, doing the doodle game just with a wet hand. Um, they could be playing board games in the sky. It's really up to you what you want to take from it. But it, as a depiction of the everyday lives of people, this was just such a fun slice of life to take. Yeah, that's that's neat. Yeah. It's fun that, it's fun that kids have always been playing the same games, and it's fun that adults have always hated it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And with that, I think we've given us a lot of really practical ways to start putting stuff into practice. So rather than coming up with a story hook to add an extra 10 minutes to an already long episode, we might just leave us there. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, as you heard at the beginning, if you wanted to get in contact, please, please feel free to email us on deepdivetnc at gmail.com or contact us on at Dungeon Deep Dive on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, we get notifications for it. Um, and as you heard, we're very excited to get any emails. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, let us know if you use any of these things, if you if you incorporate any of the like different games and stuff into your things, if you plan anything based on those like models or whatever, let us know. That'd be cool. Exactly. Personally, just for my enjoyment, I'd love to find out uh, what what you and your grade got banned at school. That's not for D and D. That's just for me. I'd love to. <laughs> I'd love to know what like rowdy childhood you had. Thank you so much, everybody. Please feel free get in contact. We'd love to hear what games got banned or what you're using. Uh, and until next time, uh, I don't have a sign off for this podcast. Bye. Fucking bye. See ya.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.